So Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Ecclesiastes chapter 6. So we're going through the book of Solomon, a verse at a time. And some days I think, oh, I'll take a big chunk of this. It's kind of all in that whole subject, and, 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 and there's a lot more there. And I don't want to miss stuff, and I don't want to belabor stuff. But um, it's just neat, as I was even praying, how uh, the Lord guides and directs through this, these texts. He brings up topics and subjects that's like, I never would have picked that, you know, and have it in this way. And, uh, and I always trust Him. I trust Him in His timing, that He knows what He wants to say, and what He needs to say, it, and what we need to hear, and what we're facing in our, in our society. And so... I trust that that's how this passage is used this morning. Uh, So Ecclesiastes chapter 6, we'll read verses uh, 3 through 6 as our text this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, verse 3 says, If a man beget a hundred children and live many years, so that the days of his years be many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial, I say that an untimely birth is better than he. For he cometh in with vanity, and he departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he hath not seen the sun, nor known anything, that uh, he hath more rest than the other. Yea, though he live a thousand years, twice told, yet hath not seen good, do not all go to one place. Uh, Again, it's uh, Hebrew's poetry a little bit, you know, uh, translated. Uh, into English here, and so sometimes it's a little clunky, and it's translated into a little bit older English and a little harder to understand. And, and so because of his poetry, you have to stop and think on it. You know, I, I kind of like challenges like that. You ever listen to songs or, or listen to an album, and you think, what was this guy thinking when he wrote that? Or even reading a book, it's like uh, the clues that are in there just to kind of help you understand someone's pouring their life out in this way. Solomon's doing that. You know, he, he's done research. He, he's looking into things, and he's coming, and he's asking hard questions, and, and he's pouring it in here, and he's trying to put it in a way. And sometimes in a poetical way or even in a, a more flowery speech it does bring more to it it kind of sets a tone in this way and it's kind of this passage here has been been called a bitter passage and it is kind of bitter as it talks about the death of a stillborn here and that is a, a bitter subject and um, it is a hard time but Solomon is taking in all these lives that he has observed He's been watching them, and we've talked about that each and every week as he watches lives and he watches um, life as, as he goes through the town and, and the tragic things that he sees. And it seems like the tragic ones are the ones that stick out to him the most, you know, the, 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 the injustices. You know, those are the ones that make the headlines, right? You know, it's the, the tragedies, the injustices, the bad news that seems to always comes to the topic, top, top and uh, the ones that kind of resonate with us with what are we doing, what are we saying? And, and Solomon has that same feeling here. He's looking for the keys of life. And the world does that. They look in many places. They don't always look in the right place. But he's kind of doing that, and he's limiting himself to just looking under the sun, not thinking about God, not thinking about eternity. But, as we see, that it's inevitable as he searches that his mind usually goes back to that, and he draws to that. Uh, but he's looking for the meaning of life. People do that now. You know, why? Well, why are we going through all this? What's the point of life is what he's asking but he's limited his search to here and now, to this world, the natural world, uh, no afterlife, no supernatural. And you think in the Old Testament scheme of things, they don't have much scripture to go by. You know, they have uh, Genesis, the book of the law, you know, they have uh, the first five books and they have the historical books that have gone through. And you figure we've been through first and second Kings, that's more on, on Wednesday night. 
you know, he's first kings. You know, he hasn't even had all that experience. You know, he, he's the he's David's son. You know, who's writing this, and so there's not been a lot of scripture that you and I benefit from. We live in a good time when we have the completed word of God, where we have the Old Testament promises, the predictions. You know, uh, the looking forward to the anticipation of a savior. We live in the fulfillment of that and the completion of the book and the promises of his second return. You know, they'll come back for us in that way. So we live in a very beneficial time, let alone the technology we have to be able to search and to study and to, and to pour into all this, even though it isn't written in a different language, translated into English, that we can go and, and find out the meaning. And so we, we have an advantage over where Solomon is. And so we need to kind of remember that as, as well, you know, the context of when he is writing. And so he's asking all these things like, we just all die? You know, he's staring into a dark hole. Is there any light to shine on it? Yes, there's a light who comes, who shines on the darkness of death. And he tells us, yes, you can have victory and we can have everlasting life if you just repent and trust in me. And we have the benefit of that. But he's limited to what he has right here and now. And he questions. He's like, can life have meaning? Can life have fulfillment without God, without eternity? And his answer is no. You know, that's the memory verse. You know, it's like, no, you know, there has to be eternity and we have to be satisfied in God. But here he's asking a hard question. He says, if a man beget a hundred, verse three, if a man beget a hundred children and live many years, so the day of his year be many and his soul be not filled with good, and he have no burial, I say that he, uh, an untimely birth is better than he. Years be many. Uh, <clears throat> we lose a little bit of this because this is not, uh, the American dream. I don't know what American dream is anymore. Uh, but uh, uh, this is the Old Testament man's dream. The Old Testament man's dream, what an Old Testament man would want. If you'd ask him, like, when he was young, you know, and he, and he finds a wife, what would you want in life? What, what would make you happy? The Old Testament man would say, I want a hundred kids. I want to live a ripe old life with my hundred kids. Family. Uh, family's under attack. Yeah, I don't have to tell you that. You know, divide the family up, break the family up. You have no time for kids. Don't put any time with your kids. You do all the, you know, it's under attack. You know, that's why weddings are, are, a, are a shake of our fist back at them. A godly, honored wedding in that way is to do that. But they wanted children by the score. They wanted years by the thousands. You know, they wanted a long life. They wanted to have time together. They wanted to have kids. You know, that was the, that was the, the quiver fool, as we pray, that they wanted that. They wanted long life and ton of kids. That's what they were hoping for. That was happiness for them. That was the, uh, the Old Testament dream in that way and, and in their culture. And so he fulfills this dream. If a man beget a hundred children, verse 3, and live many years, and so he has the hundred kids, and he lives a million, or lives a million, lives a thousand years, so he lives to ripe old age, basically. That's everything a man could dream of. If you had a hundred kids, and, you know, and, and even if he's using poetic terms here, he had a, he's got a house full of kids, and he lives to a ripe old age. He's like, ah, oh, it's everything. He, he should die happy. This should be a happy guy if he does that. Yet he says, if it wasn't good, he says, his days be many, and his soul be not filled with good. Soul be not filled with good. If it wasn't good, it basically means he'll find that it doesn't satisfy. You know, if that's what he thinks happiness is, is, just, if I just get everything I ever wanted, which in this case was a long life and a lot of kids, so he'll find it doesn't satisfy. He'll find that he still has an emptiness, right? We talk about that, you know, that there's an emptiness, there's a yearning that only Christ can fill, you know, knowing that we have an eternal home, knowing that we can be with him, knowing that we can live forever, knowing that we have satisfaction in him, you know, um, all the answers to my life and my dreams are going to come through my wife. If, if I put it all on her, that's too much for her to bear. She can't meet all that. God meets all that. She does a 
darn good job, though. <laughs> but but, but uh, you know, it's uh, you can't have satisfaction in someone else unless it's God. You know, He's the one who's satisfied. He's the one who takes care. He's going to find that it didn't fulfill like you thought. And we talked about that last week, and somebody even shared with me. Uh, and, I, and I searched through, and I was trying to find a lot of rich and famous people because you find this. You know, think of Robin Williams. You know, it seemed like he had money, he had fame, he had he was a movie star. You know, and he hangs himself depressed. What's he depressed about? He's got everything we yearn for, right? Fame and money and all this stuff. Yet you find it doesn't answer. Kurt Cobain, other people you know, the, that you can even hear in their music, other guys saying, "This doesn't satisfy. I've got it all. It's not it. What else is there?" You know, they ask those questions because those things don't satisfy. They find themselves like this guy. I have everything and I have nothing. I'm not happy. I'm, I'm not content. What, 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 there must be more. They find themselves in there. Um, and then this guy, it says he has no burial. So he, has, he finds he's not satisfied with everything he has. And he says, then he has no burial. No burial was the worst insult that you could have in the Hebrew mind. Uh, in the Jewish culture... They are different than you and I, in many ways, uh, but, but they are different than you and I, and that they didn't celebrate birthdays. That, that wasn't so much importance to us. You know, that's what the Bible mentions Christ's birth, and we celebrate that and we thank him for it, you know, because it's kind of our culture to, to remember someone's birth, and, and it's also, you know, his birth is, is a big deal. <laughs> but they more honored someone's death, because then that was the reflection on their life, what they did who they were, uh, who their family was, the investments they made, all these things, their life, you know, their life, their story, it was there. You know, that's what they honored. That's what they celebrated, you know, to, to be mourned, to be missed, to be loved, and, and to have those interactions with people. That was what they, they yearned for in that way. You know, death was a bigger deal for them. The, the, the life at the end, at, at their, the memorial service at the end, you know, um, a life remembered. They remember him, yet he's got 100 kids. And assuming it's in their culture, you know, he probably had multiple wives, you know, and so multiple wives, multiple kids, and, and, and he dies, and no one remembers him? Well, I was thinking on that text, and I'm like, man, that, that's sad. But a song come to mind uh, that helped me kind of put it into words. Cats in the Cradle, Harry Chapman. I think most of us probably know that one. Um, my child arrived just the other day. He came into the world in the usual way, but there were planes to catch and bills to pay. And then, the, you know, it comes in the round. It says, the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy left the man in the moon. When are you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then. He's just too busy. And the song goes on and on and on. He says, I'm going to be like you, Dad. The kid keeps saying, I'm going to be just like you, Dad. And he keeps saying all this. And yet, the dad misses him walking because he's gone. He doesn't play ball with him. He doesn't teach him how to throw, the song says. He misses his college years, and he starts to get older, and he starts wanting to spend time with him. He missed it all because he was busy pursuing his life, his American dream, making sure his child had everything he wanted, a college education, a house to live in. He had all this stuff, but he didn't have his dad because his dad was out and around, and the song goes all that. And that is he, after he retires, you know, and he finally has some time, and he says, boy, what are my sons doing? He says, oh, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He says, I love to dad if I could find the time. I got a new job and the hassles and kids with the flu. They're sure nice talking to you, dad. And he goes, boy, my son turned out just like me. He was just like me. He never had time for him, doesn't have time for him in his old age. That's sad. That's a missing the priorities. You hear you have this investment in a life and you squander it and trying to give them everything they want you. They want time with you. They want experiences with you. They don't care how fat, how flashy or how fat. They might say they don't, but they don't. 
did my heart good the other day. I listened to uh, uh, Levi. I said he was talking to a co-worker, and, and the guy was wanting to take his kids. who were young, like young, young, and uh, wanted to take them to a, a basketball game. He's like, but there's just no good games coming up. You know, I don't know who they're playing and all this stuff. And Levi's like, buy the cheapest seat, sit in the top row, buy him a hot dog, and tell him how big the place is because you're up high and you can see it all. He goes, that's what my dad did to me. He goes, I remember the hot dog, and I remember how big it was. <laughs> and we went on the free night. He didn't know that. But... <laughs> After the strike, and they're trying to get people back. You're like, this is awesome. It's, he goes, that's all I, I don't remember who we played. I, I don't know how many Pacer games I've been to, three or four. I don't remember who they played. It was just in there like, oh, I got a big. I remember the jump rope guy in the quarter in halftime. Like, I remember the little things in between. It's just kind of more the atmosphere. Like, invest in the kids in that way. and, and Invest in uh, time spent. Mom taking us horseback riding, you know, planting trees in the yard, and Dad had me jump over all of them. I, I remember those things more than, I do remember Star Wars. But, you know, <laughs> all those little things that we did here and there, you know, playing through our house and it was being built, you know, and, and imagining things, finding an arrowhead and taking it in our garden, and then taking it to my dad, and he's like, what stories could that tell? And I'm like, I don't know. You know, to shoot a guy, did he shoot a deer, did he miss it, hit a tree? You know, I don't know, what, there's, what, what's all in that? Just Fueling the imagination, you know, and um, times we step into the woods and be like, what was it like when no one was here and Daniel Boone's the first guy walking through or, or whatever else? It's just all these thoughts, you know, and, and the creative things that came, you know, the, the times we played in the yard and, you know, mom taking the simplest stuff and having us make something out of it or stacking the chairs up, throwing a blanket off it and then making a tunnel that we've been clawing. I, I remember all those things. I remember Disney World too, but, but it's all that little stuff, time invested and playing together and playing together with the kids and that, this guy misses that. There's no burial, no one shows up. Solomon says this guy, a stillborn, had a better life than him. And that's, that's harsh. But he tells us why, that's what he means by an untimely birth at the end of verse 3. An untimely birth is better than he. Here's how he says why. He says, for he cometh, the untimely birth, is what he's talking about here in verse 4, for he cometh with vanity and departeth in darkness, and his name shall be covered with darkness. Moreover, he shall not be seen of the sun, nor known anything. This hath more rest than the other. Uh, so the stillborn, and you can sum this up was, like uh, verse 4, you can pretty much sum up this way. He was mourned. The stillborn didn't live a life, and yet that life that was there and, and the potential of all that life and the potential of everything you had and, and the hope through the pregnancy when it didn't happen was mourned. The loss of everything that could have been was mourned. People were sad. People were hurt. Families were hurt for them. There was mourning over one that they didn't know. There was mourning over one that they didn't have that invested in. That This was a life that was missed. It was a life that was just the hope of life and the spark that was there that was broke hearts. And it went into all that. And, and it just, he's like, that was a life that was missed. Here's this other guy who had a hundred kids and lives to be a ripe old age and no one could care less when he died. He's like, that, that, that stillborn had a better life than the guy who wasted a life. Man, he says, uh, verse 5 says, this one never even saw the sun. More we had not seen the sun nor known anything, and he had more rest than the other. He says he didn't know anything about life. He didn't have experience anything. And yet he has more rest because the other guy who had the long life and he had all the kids, 
In the Old Testament, Solomon's mind, he's not at rest because he knows no one showed up at his burial. He knows that no one mourned him, that no one missed him. That his funeral was not even a a non-event. No one showed. I was trying to think like in the Christmas story, Ebenezer Scrooge, you know, before the encounter with all the ghosts and all that stuff. You know, but, but he's the one where it's like, no one's going to miss him. Matter of fact, they're going to throw a party when he dies. You know, he's the guy that makes you work for no overtime. And, oh, okay, I guess you can go home at Christmas. You know, the jerk guy. It's like when the more people are like, yay, ding dong, the witch is dead. Kind of that guy. He's like, this guy's like that where they don't care if anything, they're going to throw a party when they're gone. He said, that's a sad lie. Versus one who barely had life. Verse 6 says, yea, though he live a thousand years, twice told. If he lived two thousand years, and he hath not seen no good... Do not, all go, do not all go to the same place. He says, uh, both die, but one wasted their life versus the baby who never had a chance. And he says, and the baby had the better one because he was mourned. He was missed. He'd impacted lives with, with the potential there more than someone who squandered a life away. Christian mindset, and the Christian mindset comes from the Scripture. We base our beliefs on the Scripture. We go to the Scriptures for answer. Answers for hard things. And there's a comfort in that. I don't know about your reasoning, but I can tell you some of my reasoning when I hear of tragedies and, and when bad things happen and, and you wonder why. First I think about if it's a mass shooting or a bus accident or something horrible someplace. I think, were they Christians? How many of them knew the Lord? You know? Where are they? I remember thinking that was Saddam Hussein you know, when they executed him. I'm like, if he would have cried out for God to forgive him before they put that noose around his house, he would have been forgiven because our God is that big and that strong and that kind and that forgiving. I've had to comfort many of people, that mo- too, mo- too many, not many, but too many with that in a circumstance like that. I'm, at the last minute, I can offer you this hope in that if they would have cried out, God would have forgiven them. Because it's not what we do for Christ that saves us. It's what Christ has done for us that saves us. And salvation can come to them in the last minute. But I think of the tragedy, I'm like, how many of them were Christians? Or then I start to think about, I wonder how old they were. Because see, we, there's, a, there's a belief in, in Christian thought, and I'm going to tell you some of the things behind that and why we think that. At least one passage in particular on that if you're young enough... That yes, the death of a young person is horrible. Horrible. It hits us harder than anything, you know. Franklin experienced that way too much this year. It's horrible. But, but you start thinking about who were they? How old were they? How accountable were they? Right? We talk about the age of accountability. Because we believe that God is kind and God is gracious and God is merciful. And if a young one dies, under the age of accountability, what age is that? We don't know. But, the, but they would go to heaven. And here's why. Because a baby is conceived in sin. David tells us that. And he doesn't mean the act of that. But he means conceived in sin. He's conceived under the curse. You know, we are born under the curse. We are all descendants of Adam. And we are under the curse. And that is a death sentence. You know, the death comes. A baby hasn't had a chance to do anything. Right? He hasn't had a chance to lie. He hasn't had a chance to steal. He hasn't had a chance to, to lust. He hasn't had a chance to do any of those things. But because the curse is upon us, he dies. You know, it, it, it's there. And so they're under the curse, but they never commit a sin. And so they die. There's, there's, there's that penalty of death comes upon them, but none of the penalty of suffering comes upon them because they've not actually committed a sin. And so we believe they don't, you know, they don't, they don't go to hell. They, they go to heaven because they've never sinned. They never knew about sin. They never do that. We, as a matter of fact, we extend it up until 
Age of accountability. What is that? Some say 13. I don't think it's that anymore if it was. Or if it is, I think it's individual. And then the Bible gives us an example. Look at the book of Jonah. Jonah's more about fish stories. Last chapter of Jonah. Not Joel. That's where I turned. Uh, <laughs> won't help me out this topic. Look of Jonah. There's a lot going on in Jonah. He's pronouncing judgment on evil people. But this God of the Old Testament that we've been seeing on, on Wednesday night, when you take time and you read the Bible a verse at a time, the God of the Old Testament that the world always wants to tout is a mean, evil, vindictive God, you know, a genocidal God in this way, is a God of second chances, is a God of grace, is who's the God who pleads for the lost to come to know him. That's the last thing, the last king, God sends Jeremiah the prophet and pleads with him, if you would but go outside and humble yourself and bow down to the king of Babylon, I will spare your life, your children's life, and I will spare the city of Jerusalem. The guy runs away and tries to hide. They catch him. They kill his children in front of him. They pluck out his eyes or burn his eyes out or something. They make him blind. Last thing he sees is his kids dying. They lead him away into captivity where he dies. They come in. They burn the city down. They trash the walls. They trash it all down. All because of his rebellion. He says, fine, you represent the people. That's how you behave. I have offered you mercy if you but humble yourself. The Bible's that way again and again. Again, God pleading. God saying, please come. God, God, God a second, third, fourth chances. Here he is, Ninevites. A wicked and evil people who instilled fear on all those that they came upon. They would put and impale people outside their city. So as you approached them, you knew who they were and you knew what they would do to you. You know, that there was an instill fear upon them. They were hated. They were despised. They were evil, especially by the Jews. That's why Jonah's like, I don't want to tell them about repentance. I don't want to tell them that they can, uh, you know, they can be spared this judgment. I want you to judge them, God. That's why he gets on the boat and runs to the end of the world, right? And so, and God's like... I need to have a talk with you. <laughs> you know, and that's what we know about the fish, and, and, and it takes him all and transports him there. But he goes in and he preaches, and he doesn't preach it with compassion. He doesn't preach it with kindness. He just tells them, you're, you're going to be destroyed. The king comes up with it. Well, maybe if we repent, and maybe God will forgive us, and maybe God will spare us. And so the whole city does, and they do, and Jonah's upset about it. He wanted them destroyed. He wanted them judged because of who they are and what they've done to, to the Jewish nation. But God wants to teach him about life. God wants to teach him about the value of life and how God perceives life and the value therein. And so in chapter 4, he uses an unlikely lesson. Chapter 4 and verse 5, he says, So Jonah went out of the city, he's mad, and he sat on the east side of the city, and there made him a booth, and sat under in the shadow that he might see what would become of the city. He's hoping God would judge it. He's like, well, maybe they won't repent. Maybe God will destroy it. I want to see that. And so he goes up on the hill and he sits and waits. And the Lord prepared a gourd. Okay. And he made it come up over Jonah that he might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. Because he's out in the sun, it's hot, no air conditioning. Um, and so he's, he's made try to make some shade out of what he had there. And so God's like, I'll give you a big gourd. It'll absorb some heat. It'll give you some shadow. I'll give you some shade. It'll be a place of rest. But I'll basically, I'm putting a roof over your head. It makes this big gourd grow. So Jonah was exceeding glad of the gourd. He's happy. He's like, man, God is blessed to be. I got a gourd, you know, not a roof over my head. I got a gourd over my head. You know, so he's got this gourd over his head, and it's, it's cooling him down, and he's liking it. He's like, oh, I get to sit here, and now I have some comfort. Verse 7, God prepared a worm 
And when the morning rose the next day, that smote the gourd that it withered. Stupid worm. Eats it, withers it away. Verse 8. And it came to pass when the sun did arise, that God prepared a vehement east wind. And the sun beat upon the head of Jonah, and he fainted, and he wished in himself to die, and he said, it is better for me to die than to live. Oh, just, that's a hot day. You know, <laughs> just like, this is a hot day when you have that kind of thing going on. And it's this east wind, which surprises me. I say, I got my co-worker, 93, and if you come in, he'll always, he blames everything on the wind. Oh, it's an east wind blowing. That's why the fish aren't biting. That's why you feel sick. That's why you're this way. You blame everything. We're always kind of waiting for it. And here comes the east wind. And it's the east wind. And yet here it is. I'm thinking, man, maybe he's right. That's <laughs> right there how the Bible, the east wind's blowing. But this was, must have been some wind. It must have been some hot. Where was it the other day? It set a record, like 122 Something like that. And they're like, no thank you. But um, it's super hot. He faints in the sun. He's, ah. And then God's going to tell us the thoughts that Jonah is thinking. God knows your thoughts, people. He knows his heart. He knows what he's thinking here. Verse 6. And God said to Jonah, doest thou well to be angry for the gourd? He's like, do you have a right to be angry about this gourd dying? And he said, I do well to be angry, even unto death. Jonah's sassy. You know? And so he's like, yeah, I got a right to be angry at the gourd. And God says, oh, okay, object lesson time. Verse 10, then he said to the Lord, Thou hast has pity on the gourd for that which hast not labored, neither madest it grow, which came up in a night and perished in a night. He said, you uh, are moved and are mourning over the life of a gourd. You did nothing for it. The only thing you did was enjoy it. And appreciated it. You were thankful for it. And God says you had pity on it. Pity there means compassion. You had compassion over the gourd. <laughs> gourd. You know, he loves this gourd. The gourd was, it was coolness. It was shade for him. And so he missed the gourd. He's sad about the gourd. He has compassion on the gourd. The gourd had one person care for it. The gourd had one person who missed it. The gourd had someone who was sad and mourned in its death. Better than the guy that Solomon was talking about that had a hundred kids and lived a long life. This guy, the way I take it, the Gord lived one day. You know, and it's like, and, and, and he misses it and he mourns over it. And yet, it's better off than this guy that Solomon's been talking about. But God's teaching Jonah about life, and the value of life. And we learn about accountability and who God holds accountable. Verse 11. He says, And should I not spare Nineveh, that great city, it's a great city. It's a big city. How big of a city? Wherein are more than six score, six score thousand persons. So six times 20, 120,000. Am I doing math? Yeah, because I did it earlier and I got 80,000. So I don't, I'm like, I don't think I did the math right. And so, yeah, so it's 120,000 people. A specific group of people. There are 120,000, which is a big city, right? There, you know, 120,000 specific group of people. Which people? That cannot discern between their right hand and their left hand, and also much cattle. He goes, there's 120,000 people who don't know their right hand from their left hand. And God's like, am I going to judge them too? What's he saying about somebody who doesn't know the right hand from the left hand? He's saying innocent people, right? Innocent people who haven't had a chance to work their wickedness. Innocent people who haven't had a chance to sin. Innocent people who haven't gone around and committed the atrocities that the Ninevites have. No, these are innocent people who don't know, they haven't discerned enough to know their right hand from their left. So I looked that up. When do you know your right hand from your left? 
And what I could find is that as early as three, I don't know, look at for teachers, as early as three, but usually five or six. Lily knows her, she's over there doing it right now. Yeah, but you're right, five or six probably, about average. Uh, that, 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 that sound about right? Yeah, so, so about five or six. So that's eight, so from under six and under that don't know their right hand from their left, unless you have a learning disability. Some people never learn their right hand from their left. Some people can't discern that. You know, they, they, have, they have challenges in that way. And God says, I see them as innocent. I see them as not having enough discernment to know a basic thing if you're right-handed or left-handed. And God says, I hold them in special care. I see them in a different group in that way. He says, and I have compassion on them. I'm thinking about this city and all the awfulness that they have done. And he goes, I have to think, look at those kids. And look at those who have learning disabilities. And those in that way. He says, do I, do I just wipe all them out too? Jonah, you cared about a gourd. What about these kids? And the hopes for them. Later, Nineveh is so wicked, he does have to destroy it. But God is a God of compassion, a God of second chances, a God who loves life, a God who loves children, a God who loves those who are handicapped in other ways. And then he says, what about cattle? These animals, they haven't done anything. I'm just kill them too? God thinks about every life. He considers it all. So what are we supposed to do? Learning difficulties. So there's an age set, and God says he uses it discerning the right hand from the left. And I'm not saying that's the end of the line. That's a pretty basic understanding. I think that's more where he's putting it. I think it's probably much later in life, let alone when you're doing right and wrong, when you know your morals and all these other things. He's just saying, these don't even understand the basic concept of right and left, let alone the more complicated concept of sinning against the holy God. And he's like, and yet I'm going to hold these innocent. So I think we can extend the age much up. And that's like, usually you get around 13. I, I think our job as parents is to keep our kids as innocent as long as possible. You can remove a child's innocence by what you set in front of them, what they see and experience, and what they have to embrace. That's why we guard our hearts, guard our children's heart. We're to watch over, guard, and protect them. That's why we teach them, Jesus loves me, right? They sing that song. They know who he is. They know what he's doing. We teach them the Bible stories at a young age. We show them who they are. Only a boy named David. We sing these songs to them. We tell them about what they're doing. Abraham and many sons. And they're fun and they want to sing him and they want to be a Christian soldier. Yes, sir. And they want to do all the things. They stand up, sit down, right, but turn around. And then they have all these actions and fun and they associate. We, we, we're teaching it to them. We're putting it in them. We're writing it upon their heart. We teach, them the, we teach them the importance of church by honoring God, by being there, by being in the fellowship, by being in Sunday school, by teaching to, to hear and putting underneath under other people who are teaching the same things we are to show that but society is not us, it's all of us. We agree, this is it, and here's the word, and we show them that. Teaching them to, the Ten Commandments is vital early. Look, look at Deuteronomy 6. Um, orders for his nation. Now, as we just went through in 2 Kings, they did not do this. But if they would have, it would have been better. But Deuteronomy 6, you have some of the basic instructions here. Uh, Bible, right? The basic instructions before leaving earth. Here, here's the basic instruction for parents. Uh, Deuteronomy 6, verse 3 says, Hear thou, O Israel, and observe to do it because this is what I want you to do, that it may be well with thee, and that they may increase mightily, as the Lord uh, God of thy fathers hath promised thee in the land that floweth with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. The Lord our God is one Lord. And thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thine heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy might. That's two things to teach him, that God is one, that you're loving. 
We're to appreciate Him. We're, we're to thank Him for who He is and for what He's done. We're to acknowledge Him and what we know. Verse 6, And these words which I command thee this day shall be in thine heart. And so he's talking about the law and everything else they have. Verse 7, And thou shalt teach them diligently unto thy children, and shalt talk of them when thou sittest in thine house, and when thou walkest by the way, and when thou liest down, and when thou risest up. And thou shalt bind them for a sign upon thy hand, and thou shalt be a frontlets between thine eyes. And thou shalt write them upon the post of thy house and on thy gates. He goes, I want you to immerse yourself in my word. I want you to immerse your family in my word. I want you to immerse your children in my word. And I want you to diligently teach them. Teach it. I want you to live it. I want you to show it to them. I want you to show how practical it is. I want you to show how it is by imparting it into them. I want you to acknowledge him, acknowledge me. I want you to talk about who he is, who God is, what God has done, how thankful we are to him, our history with him, what he's done for us as a nation, what he's done for us, what we're doing now. We acknowledge him and we thank him for who he is, what he's doing. We want to appease him. We want to obey his laws. We want to obey his calendar. We want to obey all these things. We want to praise him. We want to talk about him. We want to instruct them in him, what he expects and what he tells them and who he is and what they are to do and how they're to behave. We're to do all this. When are we to do it? Eh, only when you sit up. Only when you walk. Only when you go to bed. Only when you get up. Only when you're going along the wayside. Only when you're moving through your day. Basically all the time. And he says when? Is it to be a casual thing? He says diligently. Diligently means you have a point and a purpose. Today I will speak about the Lord. Today I will teach them about that. Today we will acknowledge Him. Today we'll do this. When? Each and every day we're to do that. To be instructing Him, speaking of the good and the kind things of who God is, what He is doing. Morning, day, and night. Acknowledging the Lord. Not like, hey, it's Sunday. We're going to do this thing that we don't normally do. Talk about it. No, it's to be your life. It's to be who you are. It's to be an extension of who you are because of your praise and adoration and thankfulness for who he is diligently with the plan to do it, with the purpose to do it, to instruct him. Part of that is the Ten Commandments, to teach a child those Ten Commandments early on. Do they understand all that? No. They might not even know their right hand from their left. They can parrot it back. You can go talk to Luke. He'll tell you about all the planets in the solar system and some attributes about it. I mean, he's not just parenting it because you can ask him out of context and he'll tell you, ask him today. What's the red planet? Which one has the big storm on it, right? Luke knows this stuff. Ten commandments, too. You teach it to them. Oh, no, it. Hide it in their heart, and it's going to instruct them. It is a useful tool. God, this is God's plan. What do we do to the children? What are we to raise them? What are we supposed to be doing with them? Teaching them his word, teaching him the law. Turn with me to uh, uh, Galatians 3. Uh, the Ten Commandments, we've got different ways. We have pictures ways. Mom has a way you can teach with your hand, hand symbols. You have it all out there to help you memorize the Ten Commandments. We're to instruct them in it. Galatians 3. And you're like, well, some of those are hard for them to understand. Yes, you teach them anyway. And you show it to them. You put it in their life. Maybe you explain it to them on their level. But just so that they know and they understand that it is there. We're not to shelter them from him we're to shelter them from the lost world we're to teach them him we're to teach them his his word uh, galatians 3 paul kind of tells us how this all works galatians 3 verse 22 uh, says but the scripture hath concluded all under sin the bible says all are sinners right None are righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. The Bible tells us that. That's the first part of the Romans road. We teach them that, so Paul's giving us that. The scripture has concluded all under sin, and that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to them that believe. Our hope is Jesus Christ. If you believe and trust in him, how do we give them that faith? How do we instruct them in that? Verse 23. But before faith came... We were kept under the law, shut up unto faith that, um, that sh- which should afterward be revealed. Um, and so he says, we're shut up under the law. We were under the law. 
Uh, we were under there. We, one day, you know, and, and your child will understand all this law if we have it ingrained in them. If we have it in them, we've even struck them upon it. They'll understand one day that they are a sinner, that they need a Savior, uh, that they, we need to keep their conscience sensitive. We want to inform their conscience with the law in that way. Uh, verse 23 again, but before faith came, we were kept under the law, shut up unto faith, which should be afterwards be revealed. Verse 24, wherefore the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ that we might be justified by faith. Justified by faith. It was the schoolmaster. It was teaching us, you're a liar. You were disobeyed mommy and daddy. You were being rebellious against your father and mother. You, you've coveted something that wasn't yours. You want to see covetousness? Go in the nursery. That's my toy. That's my toy. My toy. My, 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 my. <laughs> They're all the whole big battle, right? And nursery workers are all laughing. I mean, there's that covetousness going on. It's on their heart. And that was, we're teaching them these things. Teaching them what it is. Big word, yes. But, you know, hey, you're wanting something that's there. Taking time to instruct. That goes on the nursery downstairs. We're teaching them, instructing them. And the law shows us our lost state. And it teaches your child their lost state. But the one day they will know... And they will understand that they are a sinner. One day it will click. Wait a minute. I've just broken the law. That's one of the Ten Commandments. I just lied to mom and dad. I'm a liar. Thou shalt not lie. Or I just disobeyed mom and dad. Do you have a cookie? I told you not to get a cookie. Yeah, I did. I just, I just dishonored my parents. And, and we're supposed to have their hearts sensitive. And their hearts are sensitive. It's a natural part of a young one. They, they cry. Megan talks about empathy. You get one crying, they're all going to cry. You know, this, they, they have empathy one for another. They care one for another. And so we want to take these things that God has given them. We instruct them with the law. And they're like, wait a minute. I've, I've disobeyed God, I've disobeyed my mom and dad, I've broken the law, I already know it's three of the commandments, and, and then they'll be sad, wait a minute, that means I'm a sinner, what do I do with that? You've also taught them Jesus loves them. You've taught them what salvation is. They know what they talk about at church and what the pastor goes on and on about up there, and what we all talk about, and it is there, and they know where to run because you've put all the tools there at their feet, all the answers, and now that it all comes in, where do I go, where do I go? It's not a big, long life search. I don't know, I have to try Buddhism, I have to try all... No, they don't. They know right where to go. Jesus, save me. And they can cry out and ask him on their own right there because you've equipped them all with all that because of your lifestyle and what you've been teaching them and you've been diligently instructing them that it informs their conscience, it convicts them of their sin and they go right immediately to Jesus Christ so they know where to go. You leave them at the instant of salvation that the minute they are convicted that they know where to go and they can have salvation all at once right there. And so that from the minute they pass from the age of accountability, they go right into the age of accountability and salvation and appreciating who Jesus is and what he's done because you've taken them under the schoolmaster of the law. And he says, because of that, verse um, 25, but after that, faith has come and we are no longer under the schoolmaster. You believe, it makes sense. The law shows you you're a sinner. Jesus Christ has died for your sin. Now I understand what we mean by that. He is my Savior. If I would but repent and trust in Him, Jesus is my Savior. Save me, Jesus. Now you have faith. And you have faith in Jesus Christ. The object of your faith is Him. Not in your good works and not in what you're doing and not in your church attendance, but in Him and what He's done for you because you've been instructed by a loving parent and a loving Christian community and who He is and what He is doing so they know immediately where to go. And they appreciate the Savior for who He is and they have faith. They have faith and they know who He is and they know they have salvation. 26, for ye are the children of God by faith in, Jesus, in Christ Jesus. We are now children of God. We are now adopted in the family. Fitting verse for this morning. Adopted in the family. Grafted into the vine. You have salvation. Go back to Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Somewhere here in the Old Testament. 
Ecclesiastes chapter 6. Verse 3, the last part there says, An untimely birth is better than he that's stillborn, is better than this guy who lived a long life. Faith, faith came, right? For the young child who's under the law. But an untimely birth is better than this guy. The loss of a child, like I said, is a horrible thing. But they are mourned, they are missed, and they are in the hands of a loving God who cares and, and worries about those who don't know the right hand from the left. Innocent children in that way go to a holy God. I think they go to heaven. They're in his safekeeping until we get to go up there. I think maybe we get to raise our children in that way. And the real, so the tragedy is not a, a stillborn baby. That's not a tragic life. A tragic life is one who has lived and had a hundred kids and lived to a ripe old age and got to do everything they ever wanted to do and pursued everything they ever wanted to have and they had their retirement and they had all this stuff and they had all the houses and they had all the cars and they had all the trips and they died lost. No one mourns them. Not even that. They die lost and everybody mourns them. They die lost. They never ask God to save them. Never realize that they were a sinner in need of salvation. That is a tragic life. That is the one that should be mourned. Uh, not like these rich and famous people like, well, he lived a life and he lived a life this way. And it's like, man, if he didn't know Christ's Savior, I was mourning over Stephen Hawking when he died. Like, the guy was rebellious up until the end. They're like, man, what a sad life. This guy had a horrible life as far as in physically. It's like, man, the things he couldn't do. And, and, the, and the, the thing that we hope for, you know, in, in, in eternity is that, oh, your, your broken body is made new and you have, he doesn't have a hope of that. If he didn't cry out and ask Christ to save him, I pray he did. But, oh, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy to live a life without Christ. No, though it may seem like you had everything that the world would think you ever wanted. That's sadness. And I don't know how many times when I've heard of a famous person dying, I think, oh, I hope they knew. I hope someone shared with them. I hope that uh, they repented at the last minute. Even though their lifestyle might have all been one way, that thief on the cross, man, he cried out and had salvation. So could this person, no matter who they were or what they were doing. There's comfort in that. So tra- train up our children. Uh, that's the investment. That's the investment in eternity. Eternity is there. It's not just a dark hole that he looks into. We'll look at more of that uh, last week. He says, don't they all go to the same place? Well, I don't know. There's no one to shed light on it. We have one who's plunged into death, came out on the other side, tells us all kinds of things about it. We'll look at that more next, 